You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, full earnings coverage as we wrap results from Pinterest and push ahead to Qualcomm that's out after the bell. And speaking of chip makers, we'll wrap results from AMD and look at SoftBank's Arm IPO, which is eyeing a valuation of more than $60 billion. Plus, we take a deep dive into the world of crypto. We speak to the CEO of the eyeball-scanning cryptocurrency project, WorldCoin. The earnings story, two names in particular that I'm looking at. To start with AMD, a beat on the top and bottom line against expectations in the quarter gone. Signs of recovery in the PC market. A long-term projection about the market opportunity for them in the context of AI and AI accelerators. BI's Kunjan Sabani is going to join me later in the show to go through those numbers and talk about where AMD sits in the ecosystem of chip names. Then you've got Pinterest. The story's simple. The projection it's giving just shows that it's not having the same fortune in the ad space that some of its peers are. Why? Why is it not doing as well as the likes of Meta? And what is it about this platform that's not resonating in the same way as some of the ad-based social platforms? Well, we've got the perfect guest joining us now. Analyst Mark Mahaney, Evercore ISI Senior Managing Director. Mark has an outperform rating on Pinterest with a $45 price target. Mark, good morning to you from San Francisco. Good morning, What's the st- What's the story with Pinterest to your mind? It's a name you like. It is. It's actually one we recently uh, upgraded, not so much for the quarter, but we're looking forward to it, a fundamental inflection point. That fundamental inflection point requires the overall ad market to rebound and to recover. And I think the truth from earnings season so far is that it really hasn't done that. Meta had phenomenally good results, particularly in terms of its September quarter outlook. But I think that's mostly very company-specific factors. Meta has a bunch of product cycles that are all hitting at the same time. They also have the easiest comps because they were most dramatic. They were the most their company most dramatically impacted by the Apple privacy changes a year ago. So uh, that, that there's kind of a sui generis case. Whereas the other names are seeing modest improvement. That's Google. That's Pinterest. Especially these second tier platforms like Pinterest and Snap. And Snap is seeing almost no recovery. They're still declining on a negative base to begin with, or the base that was declining last year. 
So Pinterest, we still need, it's it's kind of still TBD, uh, but we still like the call because we think that eventually we're going to get this recovery in the ad market. And then we're seeing a lot of initiatives at Pinterest that are starting to show off, show up in terms of um, accelerating user growth, nice solid growth and engagement. We just need the advertisers to start clicking in. And I think that this uh, partnership that they're rolling out with Amazon in the back half of the year will kind of unlock that advertiser interest. So that's why we're long and we like uh, Pinterest as a buy. Sales in the quarter gone rose 6% to $708 million for the period ending June 30th, above street expectations. But I guess to your point, if you compare with Meta, Meta delivered double-digit percentage growth. One part of Meta's story, Mark, was AI-driven recommendations, and that seemed to boost the ad side of the equation as well. What tools does Pinterest have from a technology perspective to drive growth, both at the user level and at the top line? Well, they they also are uh, applying AI to... Uh, figure out better which content to put in front of their users to help advertisers better target ads uh, and then soon to create uh, creative. But um, uh, you step back at uh, Meta and Google, you know, the biggest at largest ad platforms are going to have structural advantages when it comes to AI. And then particularly, I think Meta has been very aggressive um, and rightly so and smartly so in terms of putting a lot of money and a lot of resources behind using machine learning and AI over the last couple of years and now generative AI to uh, to build up, you know, to help ad marketers find the right audience, monetize, I'm sorry, optimize their campaigns and do the best targeting and tracking and measurement of those uh, campaigns. And then uh, also very soon to start creating ads and then kind of A-B testing them at massive scale, which they couldn't do before. So I think you're, if you really want to see a winner in, in the the, the application of generative AI to advertising models, it's probably meta a hand over fist and then probably Google too. The other na- the other players will also benefit, I think, just not nearly to the extent that the large scale players will. Mark, Bill Reddy's been in the CEO role for a year. What is your assessment, your scorecard of his leadership so far? Well, he's implemented uh, a series of changes to try to get to, to, to regrow the user base and to raise engagement. It looks to me like he gets a V plus and A minus for doing that. I mean, since he's joined the company, you've started to get accelerating user growth again. They're doing about 450 million MAUs. It's growing, you know, solidly 7% year over year. That's pretty good growth for a a business of that base. And you're starting to see um, more engagement than some of the metrics that they talk about, like sessions or or, um, saves per user. Those are all growing faster than the number of users. So you're seeing rising engagement. So he gets kind of a B plus, A minus for that. Would still TBD, so whatever, that's a B minus, is on the advertiser side. There's some numbers he's thrown out about the small percentage of Pinterest advertisers who've adopted their tools and are spending a lot faster, like 30% growth year over year. I just want to know whether that's going to expand and cover half of the Pinterest advertiser base and whether he can really get new types of advertisers onto the platform. So that's, that's kind of what we're really watching for. And it'll be simple. It'll show up in the revenue growth numbers. And we won't just have revenue growth go from 6% to 7% to 8% year over year. I mean, it should get chunky. It should go 15%, 20%. That'll be the real test and the proof of whether uh, he's succeeding in terms of getting advertisers to, to unlocking advertiser spend. It's, uh, I know it's been 36 hours since Uber posted its numbers, but I wanted to get your take, a milestone with surprise profitability, operating profit on a gap basis. But the market seemed to sell the shares 
on sort of longer term growth concerns, how they continue growing, uh, I guess, at the you know, brighter level, but also like the future of this business beyond its legacy mark? I think you set it up right. Except that I just layer in one other thing, which is as we've gone, you know, through earnings season, it's a high bar quarter. That wasn't the case the last two quarters. Stocks had been so beaten down last year in terms of estimates, cuts, and multiple D ratings. And uh, you know, this year you've had a recovery in a small recovery in fundamentals, but you certainly have had a recovery in multiples. So I just think the bar is higher. Even look at Meta, which I would consider the monster co company report of the of the quarter. I mean, the forward guidance was materially better than and even the bulls had thought was possible. And yet that stock is kind of barely holding on to the gains and it's kind of mid single digit, you know, three, four percent gain. So it's a tough bar this quarter. Um, Uber put up a pretty good quarter. Expectations were high. But there was a little the revenue came in a little bit light. And so and I think that's mostly due to accounting change. But still, there's like a little bit of a question mark on a stock that's had a major year to date rally. So I think you're going to I think there were some technical factors in there, too. But uh, leaving that aside, I think for some of these names, this quarter is going to be kind of a it's it's not going to be a gap up quarter for good numbers. It's going to be a uh, in terms of the stock. It's going to be a kind of a consolidation quarter, and companies are going to kind of be flattish or down mid single digit percent. And then we're going to wait and see whether fundamentals continue the improvement in H2 that we saw in H1. If that happens, especially for ad names and online retail names like Amazon, then those stocks will go higher. But this is going to be a tough quarter for any you you had quarter last quarter you had a couple of these names traded up double digit percent 10 percent plus i think that's much harder to happen this uh, this quarter i think the, the setup is much tougher mark thursday does bring amazon quickly what are you expecting from amazon there's three things that matter here uh whether the operating margins uh on the retail business continue to recover i think we'll see that whether the online retail revenue growth rates kind of stable and maybe even start to accelerate based on recent positive data points. I think we'll see that. It's less certain to me. But then the most important thing is whether AWS reaccelerates. We, we're, the way we phrase it is, will the CFO use the A word, i.e. as an acceleration? And it, look, if, he, if AWS growth reaccelerates, I think you'll see a lot of follow through on the stock. I think the stock can go higher. I just don't know whether they will be able to see that. And they didn't see it in the June quarter, I'm pretty certain. Whether they're starting to see signs of that in the September quarter is a big unknown to everybody. So that's, that's, that's going to be the most important thing to glean from that earnings call. All right. High bar quarter. Mark Mahaney, Evercore, thank you so much for your time. I think we should stick with Amazon, actually. Amazon launching the biggest overhaul of its grocery business since it acquired Whole Foods Market six years ago for $13.7 billion. For more on the details, let's bring in Bloomberg's Matt Day, who's been writing about this in Business Week. I, what I enjoyed about your article is you put Amazon in the context of the entire landscape for groceries in this country. But what does the reset look like? Well, the reset looks like trying to kind of push together all the disjointed parts of its grocery business, right? Amazon bought Whole Foods several years ago. Amazon has its own Amazon Fresh uh, online delivery business. They've opened you know a few dozen stores. They're trying to make all of that kind of sing better together, right? So right now, if you go online, try to shop for groceries on Amazon, you might wind up making three separate purchases with three separate deliveries. They've said they're going to funnel that into one single basket, one single cart, um, and then eventually they're hoping to start re-expanding that, uh, that brand new Amazon Fresh physical grocery chain they started back during the pandemic. What is Andy Jassy's attitude towards the grocery business? You guys have reported that he's taken a look at other units, for example, Prime Video, and said, well, let's get this under control. So what do we know about how he views the grocery opportunity? 
since Jeff Bezos first uh, nudged Amazon toward grocery, you know, getting on 15, 20 years ago, um, the rationale has been kind of the same for Amazon. Like, listen, grocery shops are the most frequent purchase that people make. You know, we need to be there if we're going to be a large, um, you know, globe-straddling retailer, right? Amazon's got a tidy business, of course, already, but we've heard Andy Jassy make some of the similar comments that, you know, listen, groceries are a really important category. We think we have something to say there, and we're committed to it for the long term. You know, that said, they did make a pretty uh, big tap on the brakes, you know, this, about this time a year ago when they stopped expanding Amazon Fresh stores and really taking a hard look at, you know, whether their grocery strategy was the right one. They think they're there, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. All right, Bloomberg's Matt Day. Check out his piece in Business Week about the big Amazon grocery reset. AMD reported better than expected second quarter results, which signals some optimism about the chipmaker's AI potential. The CEO saying, quote, while we're still in the very early days of the new era of AI, it's clear that it represents a multi-billion dollar growth opportunity for AMD. Joining us now, Bloomberg Intelligence's chip analyst, Kunjan Sabani. So the opportunity is framed as being $150 billion by 2027. We're talking specifically about uh, AI accelerators. The stock now at session lows down 8%. What do we not like about what AMD said? I think the stock reaction is due to the lack of any quantifiable matrix around the AI business. I mean, look, there's no doubt that there is definite positive customer interest. There's definite positive customer feedback. But these processes take a long time. You go from sampling to customers. They need to qualify it, place the POs. And even after that, there's a couple of quarters for the ramp. So I think the stock reaction is due to the lack of any quantifiable matrix around the magnitude and the timing of the revenue upside from this business for, for next year. The way that AMD framed it is that customer engagements, engagements were 7x in the quarter gone, but that doesn't equate to booking revenue. I guess that's your point. Exactly. Yes. And talk about where AMD is in the life cycle of its AI offering. You know, the, on this show, Bloomberg Technology, we're always talking about NVIDIA and H100s, but that is just the latest generation of a number of AI-relevant GPUs from NVIDIA that have been in the market for a long time. Has AMD actually got anything out there in the wild that customers have their hands on? I mean, uh, for Apple's Apple's comparison, the MI300X will be uh, the specific AI GPU, which is supposed to sample or go to production ramp in Q4. So no, uh, NVIDIA is running right now, deployed a second generation GPUs in the field already, but AMD is a tad bit late to this game. The story for AMD is AI accelerators. What is an AI accelerator? Right, so I think most people are aware of a CPU, which is a general purpose compute uh, designed to process a lot of different tasks and do it well. But an accelerator is a chip specifically designed to fastly process one specific type of task, hence the name accelerator, because it accelerates the processing of one specific type of task. So a GPU, in theory, is a type of accelerator. The other types of accelerators are ASIC chips, like from once from Broadcom. Uh, the TPU that Google uses is an accelerator. So when, when there's a chip designed to only do compute for a specific task, but do it very, very fast, that's what we call it as an accelerator. Away from the excitement of AI, this earnings season has been about the core legacy businesses. What did you learn about AMD's health in PC and in data center? I mean, similar to Intel, uh, the results around PC was 
really good. It shows that the PC market bottom is finally turning and on its path to a, a recovery, and the second half seasonality is going to be a tailwind there. When it comes to data center, though, we have seen it again, both from AMD and Intel, that the enterprise market remains a mixed environment. There's still some inventory that needs to be cleared, and the demand is not as strong. And on the side of on the data center for the cloud guys, though, um, coming into this year, we know that the total wallet spend is lower than what we expected at the end of 2022. And they're heavily spending in their AI cloud portion, which forces them to optimize in the non-AI cloud portion. And that's where these players have the big market, in, both AMD and Intel are feeling that burn. All right, Bloomberg Intelligence's Kunjan Sabani took out his earnings outlook on the Bloomberg terminal. Sticking with chips, SoftBank is also feeling optimistic about AI. The company's semiconductor unit, Arm, is targeting an IPO valued between 60 and $70 billion. According to Bloomberg sources, the company could go public as soon as September. Earlier this year, bankers had pitched valuations ranging from $30 billion to $70 billion. But Arm CEO Rene Haas and SoftBank's Masayoshi Sun considered the lower end of that range too low. This debut would surpass most in the chip industry. All right, coming up, sticking with AI impacting the workforce, how some US states are seeking to regulate the new tech. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
Time now for Work Shifting, where we look at the changing landscape of the labour market amid advances in technology. First up, trying to sort winners from losers as AI spreads through the economy. The stock market already is, and it goes way beyond NVIDIA and Microsoft. A trio of researchers from California universities say companies with workforces ripest for AI are beating the market. Their study, titled Generative AI and Firm Values, depicts a market that is already making broad judgments about how automation will impact things like cash flows and stock valuation as intelligent systems cement themselves as tools of production. Sticking with AI, US states are seeking to regulate AI with new legislation. North Dakota's AI-related measures were among more than a dozen that have passed legislatures across the US, covering matters that range from road maintenance to examining potential racial discrimination by automated systems. And companies that contract social media influencers are now demanding that those influencers buy insurance. Businesses partnering with semi-famous people on TikTok, Instagram and YouTube want the personalities to take out policies to protect the brands that they're promoting before they can expect any more deals. Here with all the details, Bloomberg's Alex Barinka out in LA. Okay. Why does a semi-famous influencer need an insurance policy? What is the argument here? Well, it's all about, uh, usually these are brands who are, who are contracting these influencers. When brands go to influencers and ask them to make content for them, either for their own channels or to post on social media, there's always been this inherent level of risk, right? You're turning over your brand voice to these influencers, to these internet individuals, and now it seems like they're taking it a step further. As influencers have become such a bigger part of their marketing um, spend, it seems like brands are looking to cap some of that risk by asking these creators to take out these insurance policies that would protect them from doing things like using music that's not licensed for commercial use or as I see here in LA almost every single day taking pictures in front of a painted wall of a building and that building uh, image happened to be copywritten so brands are really looking to kind of cap their risk here but it's a really interesting move for creators a lot of which are not making uh, so much money in every single year so I guess the question is, is the threat of legal action real? Have we seen lawsuits against people trying to make their name online? We have, and there have been a couple key cases uh, mentioned by our colleague in some good reporting today. One is Bang Energy. It's an energy drink that, Ed, if you spend any time on TikTok, you see creators big and small promoting it. They, uh, there was a, a lawsuit that alleged that creators who were promoting the energy drink was using music on TikTok that was not sanctioned for commercial use. Not every sound or song you see on TikTok are you able to use in something like an ad. There was also a suit in, uh, in London against a beauty brand called called Iconic, where a creator took a picture in front of a piece of wall art that wasn't, that was copywritten. So these things are, are beginning to come up, but Ed, the economics of these are really interesting. You could be a creator who is looking to get paid $4,000 for one post, but the brand is then asking you to take out a $2 million insurance policy, basically exactly. to indemnify them and asking you to spend 2000 a year to keep that policy viable. So quite interesting economics here that's being asked of these creators. Uh, as brands are looking to them to create content, frankly, a lot cheaper sometimes than they can make in-house. So some of the numbers behind these policy limits are incredible. But how, how does it work? Hey, insurance broker, I'm, I'm an influencer. Uh, I need, you know, do you see what I'm, where are you getting this from? Is there a market for insurers who are saying, oh, we better protect these famous people? 
I would call the market, Ed, pretty budding. Um, for larger creators, famous names that you and I might know, people who are celebrities on online, this has been kind of par for the course. But when you start to talk about the, the vast majority of creators who are smaller micro-influencers who have 1,000 to 10,000 followers, that's kind of a, a scattershot approach. The brokers that our colleague talked to say that they basically do it on a case-by-case -case basis. They look at the creator, they see how controversial they are, and they pick a number based on their own internal calculations. All right, Bloomberg's Alex Barinka out in LA and all things influencer insurance. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. It's the search for crypto clarity. Investors are seeing the cryptocurrency market surge and sink as two federal New York judges issued decidedly different rulings over one single question. Is crypto a security? On July 13th, shares of Coinbase surged 24% as U.S. District Judge Annalisa Torres found Ripple Labs issued tokens were not a security despite the SEC's arguments that it was. Then, on the following Tuesday, District Judge Jed Rakoff found Terraform Labs tokens may be a security, prompting Coinbase to fall as much as 9.5%. Another story in the world of crypto, FTX co-founder Samuel Bankman-Fried claims that revoking his bond and jailing him for speaking with a newspaper reporter would violate his free speech rights. For more, who else? Bloomberg Shanali Basak joins us. Hard one to understand, but what is Bankman Freed's argument? Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about what got us here. About July 20th, you had the New York Times publishing a story that kind of got into here Google documents that had the private writings of Caroline Ellison, who would have been slated to be a star witness in the trial here when you look at what had happened between Sam Bankman Freed and his workings inside of FTX. Remember, Caroline Ellison was once dating Sam Bankman Freed, and some of what she had said, according to the New York Times reporting was that she was uncertain about how she had ran uh, Alameda, that she didn't particularly feel well-suited to run the company, and it felt weird given that they had been dating on and off these two. Now, within a day, the U.S. prosecutors had alleged SBF of providing the press with these writings to discredit her as a witness. Now, what Sam Bankman-Fried is saying, because the prosecutors had asked a judge last week to revoke that $250 million bond, uh, he is saying that revoking that bond would would violate his free speech. This is exactly his response, that, that Sam Bankman-Fried's contact with the New York Times reporter was not an attempt to intimidate Mrs. Ellison or to taint the jury pool. It was a proper exercise of his rights to make a fair comment on an article already in progress, for which the reporter had already had alternate sources. So that is where we stand today. Significant dispute over from Sam Bankman-Fried. We will see how this trial plays out. And we will continue to track it. Bloomberg Shanali Basak, stay with us because we're sticking with the broader crypto theme, but turning to a different project in the cryptoverse, WorldCoin. The company aiming to create digital IDs by scanning people's eyeballs has been suspended in Kenya after launching just last week. This is the country looks into security and data concerns. We spoke with Chris Perskin, president of CoinFund, an investor in WorldCoin, about its availability in the future here in the United States. 
it's already here. I've had my orb personally scanned. Uh, it's a matter of when will the token drop. And I think maybe it goes back to, um, gosh, it sounds like a lot of these cryptocurrencies are a lot like oranges. Um, and so as that narrative plays out, I think you'll see the token become available here. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's here. You can get your eye scanned on the orb. Um, and again, I think it's going to deliver real utility as we go into this brave new world. That was a key investor. For more, we're joined by WorldCoin's CEO, Alex Blani. Alex, welcome to Bloomberg Technology, and thank you for your time. Optimism from one of your biggest investors about the potential of WorldCoin, but acknowledgement of security incidents and, and sort of existing controversy around the company and what's happened. What is your response to that? Well, I mean, that it is controversial is not surprising uh, to us, right? I think there is this immediate reaction to uh, biometrics uh, and specifically our scanning, and that is to be expected. However, the technology is actually privacy-preserving, and we believe it's going to be very, very important in a time in which AI will become increasingly powerful. You know, in the first... 24 hours of the launch, there was very, very, very significant uptake already when you look at the WorldCoin token that had dropped. How has that uptake continued, and have you seen a tapering at all? It, it stayed surprisingly constant, honestly. We did not see much change, either up or down. Uh, it's very early, of course. This is a multi-year-long uh, or even multi-decade-long project, so I think we're like super, super early in the game here. Uh, however, I'm really, really happy how last week went uh, from from all parties. So I think it was a it was a great, great start. But we have a lot of ground to cover going forward. How many people have now signed up for the scanning? How many people have got into the token? And when do you see it coming to the United States, if at all? I actually do not have the exact numbers as of right now. Um, but it's it's a little over two million. Uh, we had a like crazy crazy spike in demand last week we had i think over 600,000 app downloads um in, in the first couple of days and we had lines really all over the world which was very uh, kind of very encouraging and very cool to see everywhere from tokyo to hong kong to singapore to uh even kind of in europe spain argentina nairobi so we it, it was a very very stressful week we had a lot of kind of demand to react to. And uh, especially early on, our, our servers actually broke down uh, under that. But yeah, we, it's, it's, as I said, it's early. We have to, we have to grow and, and kind of roll out more devices in the coming months. So it's, it's really just the, the, the beginning of a long sprint. Alex, we, we refer to WorldCoin as, as a crypto project, but, but I'm interested in the retinal scanning component, the underlying technology. Could you explain to our audience where your competence lays? Is it in that retinal scanning technology that, that you guys have been doing most of your work, or do you get that from a third party? So f first of all, WorldCoin is a protocol. It's a open source and eventually fully decentralized protocol that everyone can use and everyone can integrate with. So it, it is not a company. Uh, I think that's the first important thing to understand. I'm the CEO of Tools for Humanity, which is a kind of one of the main and, of course, the founding contributor to WorldCoin, but there will be many others as we go forward. But now to your question, uh, actually explaining where the competence lies, how does it fit together with crypto? 
the original idea of Rollcoin was um, starting a financial network based on the idea of proof of personhood. Proof of personhood essentially means that you as a user, you can verify online that you are a unique human being without revealing any privacy related data. So you actually, let's say, let's say actually with Twitter uh, or X, uh, you want to verify on X that you're an actual human being, you're not a bot. Uh, which we believe will be increasingly important as we go forward, as AI becomes increasingly powerful, you will be able to just do that with World ID uh, without revealing any personal information about yourself uh, by using what is called zero-knowledge proofs. And that is, for example, that's one of the pieces why crypto is important. In, in cryptography, uh, there is something called zero-knowledge proofs that lets you prove uh, certain statements without actually revealing the underlying information, which is very, very important. Um, the... To do that, so as a user to receive your world ID, you have to verify yourself in front of a physical device. It's a 20 centimeter sphere. It's called the orb. And they will be really all over the world in public spaces, in malls, uh, and, and even kind of wander around cities. It's a decentralized model. So it's not we as a project operate these, but rather you have entrepreneurs and founders all over the world that actually can operate these devices and then earn world kind of very sign up. And you as a user, you download the app. Uh, it's called World App, which is the first app that actually allows you to do that, but many others will come. And you uh, click on a map. You say, I want to verify now. You go in front of one of those devices, and you receive your World ID, which then lets you verify online uh, with whoever integrates it in the future. Sam Altman is one of the founders of this initiative and World ID. Day to day, what role does he play? How are you and he separating your time and your duties? Sam is very clearly focused on OpenAI, uh, given he's the CEO of OpenAI and I'm the CEO of Tools for Humanity. However, he is a uh, co-founder here. So all important initiatives, uh, he's obviously very aware of. Uh, if there's work streams that really touch him, he's involved with. Um, and otherwise his involvement changes week to week, depending on what we actually work on um like is it is it mostly product or engineer focused he's less involved if it's uh, let's say a fundraise he's much more involved that really depends on uh, what is happening in the business day to day now i'm kind of curious here we we talked about the kenyan government's reaction to worldcoin more recently at the start of this interview i'm wondering if you are working with the kenyan government to address some of the concerns that they may have given how important the market was earlier on in the project yes we we work with the government uh, with actually multiple government bodies to resolve all the open un uncertainties or, or questions that there are Certainly, uh, the, the kind of the spike in demand that we saw last week was very, very surprising. So we really hope that we can get back to delivering uh, the actual product in Kenya. Uh, however, of course, we will comply with the government and all the questions that might arise and work with all the regulators uh, that are important to do so. So we stopped operating in Kenya until that is the fact, and we, we hope that we can resume operations. Now, how do you address security concerns as well, recognizing that there were worries about stolen credentials when it came to World ID earlier on, black market sales? Are these things that you are working and find a way to prevent in the future? Yes, they actually are 
Um, not surprising. So essentially, first of all, let's explain what we're actually talking about here and what was reported on. What was reported on is that uh, users in countries where, let's say, WorldCoin is not available, uh, China, um, buy accounts from users where WorldCoin is available, let's say Portugal or Nairobi. And what that actually means is not you, you, you do not sell your biometric data or, or anything like that. Uh, th I think that was one of the major misunderstandings that is very important to clarify. But rather, you sell uh, your login credentials. So let's say your email address and your, your password, let's say. Um, that's the, the best analogy to um, kind of normal use cases. And that is not even in midterm, it's not a concern because as a user, you can just recover your account. You can go back to an orb and recover your account. And essentially what that means is that uh, the other party that acquired the account um, basically acquired something that will turn out to be worthless because the, the login credentials will just stop working. Um, and so this is not an actual medium uh, to long-term concern and uh, privacy from the user is not compromised in any form. All right, Alex Blanier of WorldCoin, Bloomberg, Shanali, Basek, thanks to you both. Coming up on Bloomberg Technology, we're going to speak to the CEO of Portage about the state of fundraising in Silicon Valley. Today's VC spotlight, a focus on fintech. As we go to break, watching shares of micro strategy down around 7% in the session. Uh, the leadership of that company giving some pretty consistent long-term bullish outlook on Bitcoin, which of course underpins quite a large chunk of their balance sheet. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
A story in private markets we're tracking. Charles Lee, the former head of Hong Kong Stock Exchange, has raised $458 million in a Series C funding round for his new company, MicroConnect. The company is a platform to link international capital to small businesses in China. The firm announced the funding with participation from new and existing investors in Europe, North America, the Middle East and in Greater China. All right, joining us now, Adam Feskley, Portage CEO, Portage Capital Solutions, delivers flexible equity capital solutions and strategic resources to help public and private later stage fintech and financial services businesses. It's our daily venture spotlight segment. Adam, good morning to you from San Francisco. Welcome to the program. Good to be back on. Thanks. So there's this idea we've been talking about in VC Spotlight, that if you look at the backward-looking data, in 2023, activity broadly for venture-backed startups has dropped off. But if I go on Bloomberg.com or I go on replays of this show and I look at the headlines, lots of people closing funds and lots of companies raising money. What is your on-the-ground take of what's happening right now from an activity perspective? So for certain, we, we had a false dawn in Q1 where we felt things were coming back and then we got slammed by SVB and all the consequences related to it. I think Q2 will prove to be the low. Uh, I think anecdotally, you're right. Um, what we're seeing ourselves and with my colleagues uh, across the venture and growth markets is things are really picking up. I don't think we've been busier uh, in 12 to 18 months in, from terms of perspective term sheets that we've got in market, deals that we're closing. So it does feel a lot better I think we'll be much more comfortable if we have good, better visibility on where the Fed lies in the fall. But it, it, it absolutely, the sentiment in the market is, is much stronger. Now, your firm is, is focused largely in fintech and financial services. And you referenced the volatility around Silicon Valley banks collapsed. Has interest in fintech disruption of traditional banking carried on into the second half of this year based on what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? Yeah, I think the, the fintech market as a segment within tech definitely has been hit the most and understandably. I think there was new business models that people underwrote that haven't panned out. So, uh, you know, I think rightfully fintech uh, was hit the most. But the strongest uh, companies in the market are doing really well. If we look at our own portfolio, well, Simple or Albert, which are direct to consumer businesses, they've never been stronger. They're they're continuing to have great growth. More importantly, they're profitable. And their customer acquisition costs are really contracting as there's just less competition in the market. So a question for, for an investor like you focused on, on fintech and financial services. What is your attitude towards AI and how that fits in with your existing portfolio companies? So first and foremost, you know, across our portfolio, we're focused on how do we take costs out of our business businesses. There's huge opportunities within your engineering stack. There's huge opportunity in terms of customer service um, and, you know, operating leverage uh, growth is, is you know, going to be significant because of, of successful implementation of, of AI. And, and that's where we're, we're going to be focused, uh, uh, you, you know, in the early stages. I think ultimately there's going to be opportunities to invest in the AI companies themselves. But right now, you know, the tooling that's available for free out in the market is the best advantage that we can use, and it's within our existing portfolio. When a potential portfolio company and founder sits in front of you, 
do you want to hear them pitch that they're going after the big banks and their business? Or do you want to have them have something more focused, more niche that isn't yet in the marketplace? We want to hear about why why it is that a specific segment's really going to love their product and they're addressing a specific issue that that segment's facing. So it's not necessarily where are we taking customers from, it's where are they underserved and, and why are you going to serve them uh, better. Quickly, Adam, final question. Where's the talent right now in fintech, geographically speaking? That is a great question. I think it's everywhere. Um, it's a wonderful part about this distributed workforce. You know, we have portfolio companies that have employees all the way from Dubai to India to to New York to uh, you know regional places in the United States, and and Canada is becoming a, a greater hub as well. So I think it's it's a great time to uh, be building companies because talent is everywhere, and and in a distributed world, um, they're excited to work for you. You know, the Canada talent conversation is definitely one for another show. Adam Faleski, the Portage, thank you so much. A viral story we continue to watch. Yesterday, we reported that YouTube star Mr. Beast sued his ghost kitchen business partner, Virtual Dining, saying the company sacrificed quality in its bid for rapid expansion. Well, today, Virtual Dining has responded, saying, quote, the complaint is riddled with false statements and inaccuracies and a thinly veiled attempt to distract from Mr. Donaldson's and Beast's investments breaches of the agreements between the parties. It is a story we continue to monitor and bring the latest on elsewhere and going viral. Hollywood strikes are still going viral. This time, the Writers Guild of America sent an email to its members saying that the head of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers requested a meeting on Friday to discuss resuming contract talks. That according to the Associated Press. It was not immediately known whether a similar message was sent to union leaders for Hollywood actors. How does it? for this edition of Bloomberg Technology from here in San Francisco. Don't forget, you can recap everything in the show on our podcast. I know many of you that listen to Bloomberg Technology do. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeart, and of course, we publish the podcast to all of the Bloomberg platforms. From here in San Francisco, there is still so much to come this earnings season here on Bloomberg Technology. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.